Well, we will continue this morning in 2 Corinthians. We'll be in chapter 3 starting today. So if you'll open your Bibles with me to chapter 3, we'll be looking primarily at the first three verses today. Paul here answers the questions. How do we know our ministry or our minister is a good one? How do we know if we're saved? Today's passage, we get those answers, and we've previously covered the idea a number of times, but it comes up here again. In this context, we've been looking at, he just finished talking about the problem of these false teachers and false leaders who are just peddlers of God's Word. And now he's going, well, how do you know the difference between a peddler and someone called by God? So let us read the chapter. Told. Together. So 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at the beginning. I'll read the whole chapter because it's one big thought. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are a letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tables, tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward you, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze on Moses' face because of his glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there is glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness was far exceed its, in its glory. Indeed, in this case, what well, once said glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if this, for if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will that which is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil on his face so that the Israelites not, might not gaze on the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil un remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, the veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is a Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. 
Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage, contrasting the new covenant and the old covenant, the glory that Moses and the Israelites beheld with the glory of Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts to see and to understand what he's talking about with this letter of recommendation written on the hearts of the people of Corinth. So we pray that you would bless our examination of this and open our hearts to receive it and encourage us and bless us through it to see our own lives transformed, that we might also be a letter written by the Spirit to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we need, as I started to say in the introduction, to have an understanding of the context here. And the context, the, the larger context, particularly of chapter 3, is of how Paul and the company with him are ministers of the new covenant. And he's opposing it to the both the peddlers of God's word in the previous chapter and to the, the, coven, the covenant of Moses, the Mosaic covenant, and the ministers of it. So we should understand from this the ministry is really about the ministry of God in the Bible. And we're not looking at the world. And that's the big problem here in Corinth, is they're looking at it from a worldly perspective, and Paul is looking at it from a biblical perspective. He's not going to fight with the non-Christian in their own worldview, in their own domain. Going into their world to fight them is not going to work for him, and he knows that. Uh, we've read Proverbs 26.4 concerning this matter, I think on a Sunday afternoon, not too recently, where it says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. Paul is not going to debate the wise men of this age where they are. If he did that, there would be no point. It would be like him being a fool. He'd be a fool to do so. In Acts chapter 17 in Athens which many scholastics use to prove their form of syncretism, and I'll talk more about that later, Paul makes reference to their beliefs, but he does it only to show them their foolishness in understanding just a small glimpse of the truth, but not grasping the whole of it, the reality of it. He's not giving any credibility to their beliefs. He's rather showing them they have this little tainted glimpse of reality and they're not following it through to the ultimate biblical truth. They haven't grasped what they need to grasp. And he explains their, the biblical worldview apart from their worldview, which really earned them, earned him their contempt. In Acts 17.32, it says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We'll hear you again about this by approaching them not from their worldview and trying to persuade them of the resurrection of the dead, but declaring it boldly that this is what God says and this is reality and this is what happened. And he's not entering their world to fight. He's bringing them to his world, to the real world. I notice he brought them there because he, did, he has to fight them in the, in the battlefield of the biblical truth. Once we lay that aside, we've laid aside the only thing we have, really, the truth of Christ, the truth of God in Scripture. Now we see this again in Acts 17 there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him, and they were saying, what does this babbler wish to say? 
They seemed to be preaching foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took, that's when they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, you know, may we know this new teaching you're presenting. Will you bring some strange things to our ears? We wish, therefore, to know these things. And then what followed is he goes to the Areopagus in the passage we read. Uh, to, we need to drag the unbeliever into our world frame, into our frame of understanding, because you can't explain things from their worldview. Their worldview is without the true God, this is how things have to have come about. You know, it, it won't work for them, and we can't explain God in that kind of a context. So we need to drag them into the worldview of the Bible. And that's where the next verse of Proverbs takes us. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And he's pointing out their foolishness and answering them with Scripture, as opposed to trying to reason with them from their foolishness to somehow get the wisdom, which you can't do. This is what Paul does everywhere in his ministry and why he wrote to the Corinthians back in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1 and 2, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. That would be like the Greek and Roman philosophers of that day, like the people on Mars Hill. For I decided to know nothing amongst you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he wasn't showing them to be a superior philosopher and you should follow Christ because I have superior wisdom to your philosophers. That wasn't his approach at all. It was, in fact, that would, in fact, just be foolishness and not belief. I'm sure, though, his follows much learning included philosophy. You remember he was, you know, much learning has made you mad when he was talking about the resurrection in Acts 26, 24. I'm sure that included training in philosophy. The, the Jewish rabbis of that day were learning philosophy from the Greeks and were very influenced by it. But Paul wasn't interested in going there. He doesn't make his stand on his superior wisdom, his ability, his rhetoric, his understanding, his reasoning skills, his persuasive skills. Instead, he stands on Christ, the solid rock. And the Christ and the religion of the Word are where we can stand and where the faithful minister will always stand. And so that's kind of the general context we're working on. But the context of the chapter has to do with the covenant of Moses versus the new covenant. And we'll get to that in more detail later, but I wanted to note that some people say this is all about the Judaizers and has nothing to do with philosophy, nothing to do with the Greek and Roman religions. Uh, I would disagree and there are several reasons for that. The primary one is, in a word, the enemy here is syncretism. That's the big enemy throughout many of the New Testament books. Now, syncretism is defined, I love the dictionary definition here, you have to look up the words that define it because they're harder than the word. The amalgamation or attempted amalgamation of different religions, cultures, or schools of thought. That's just a fancy word for the the attempting to combine or unite different schools of thought and to make something new. So in our definition in Christianity, we understand it as a 
combination of different forms of belief and practice, essentially the corruption of the worship of the one true living God and the way he has prescribed in scriptures with the beliefs and practices of the godless people around us. This has always been a problem in God's people and always been a requirement of God not to do that, especially clear in the Mosaic Covenant. In Leviticus 18 and in many other places, it says, You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. You shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan in which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them, for I am the Lord your God. God goes on then to give them a list of all the abominable practices of the people around them, and not just sexual immorality and idolatry, but the way they worship their gods. And then he concludes that section saying, For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations, so that the land became unclean. Uh, one of them was offering their children to Baal in the fire to burn them alive, things like that. And that's why he calls them abominations, so that the land became unclean. Must the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you? For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you, and never make yourself unclean by any of them. I am the Lord your God. Similar thoughts are found throughout the Old Testament where they worshipped God according to the way of the people around them instead of the way God had prescribed. We saw what happened in Nadab and Abihu who offered fire to the Lord after their own idea and didn't worship according to the way God had said and God struck them down because they were the priests and they had dared to do that. Syncretism, I think, was not just a problem in the Old Testament, but it is a problem even more clearly explained in the New Testament. And particularly in the apostolic church, they had a lot of problems of syncretism where you'd go in and preach the truth and people would say, okay, well, this is our culture and we're going to adapt a little of the truth into our culture and we're going to maintain our culture and our identity. Uh, the opposite extreme, many American missionaries in the past went out and taught the American ideals in Christianity and made people Americans, not really Christians. Uh, so that syncretism goes both ways. In Galatians, there's a clear syncretism with what is now, what was at that time passing away, the Old Testament Mosaic Covenant, which Paul mentions here in this passage in great detail. Paul says to them in Galatians 5, 2 through 4, I say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify to you again that everyone accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. What is he saying to them? Well, if you want to be saved by circumcision, how can you be saved by Christ? It's one or the other. And nobody was ever saved by circumcision. They were saved by realizing through the Mosaic law that they couldn't please God and they couldn't be righteous before God and that they needed then to 
have salvation outside of themselves. You can't mix the two. As the old saying goes, it's always a destructive addition to add anything to Christ. Remember, the apostate Jews and the Judaizers believed they were saved by their own obedience to the law, and that was nonsense. Why is it nonsense? Because they can't keep the whole law. The law, Paul asked in Galatians 3.21 and following, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be of the law. But Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The purpose of the law, the Galatians makes very clear, and Romans as well, was to show people their sin and turn them to the need for somebody outside of themselves to save them, to turn them to the Messiah, to Christ. And so we see that's, that's a syncretism. They're trying to have Christ and the Old Testament law. And even though the Old Testament law was good and holy, it did not save, and trying to make it save meant you were turning your back on Christ and on grace. The Colossian heresy, we see a similar problem with syncretism, and there were various local belief systems that all get wrapped into what's called the Colossian heresy. The first was the apostate Jewish legalism, which is found everywhere in that age, and big problem in uh, Galatia, and throughout Galatia, in Galatians. That was uh, defined in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink in regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. Again, all of the Old Testament ceremonial laws they're talking about were just a shadow of showing them Christ. And the Sabbaths there were the ceremonial, not the seventh-day Sabbath, but the, the Sabbaths that came with various festivals and with various activities. That, so that was the first one. The second one was pagan Greek mythology. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going into details about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensual mind, not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So asceticism was one of the Greek philosophies. Everything in the world is bad, have nothing to do with it, give it all up. You know, eat plain food, drink plain water, uh, have nothing, enjoy nothing, but it didn't do any good. That was the Greek. And the other one was the angels. The Jews, interesting in this period, had elaborate hierarchies of angels and demons that they believed in, and that really came straight out of Greek mythology. In fact, many of the words used in the New Testament for things like hell are taken from Greek mythology because they would normally use those words in Israel at that time. So even the Greeks, or even the Israelites, were tainted and syncretized their false religion at that point, the belief in salvation by the law, 
with the Greek religion and they married those together. And then we see that coming in. Uh, the list, oh, the list could go on. But if you, Paul says to them in verse 20 to 23, if Christ, if with Christ you died to the elemental spheres of the world, why do you still alive in the world? Do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Are referring to things that perish, according to human precepts and teachings. These have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but there are no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So there's nothing they were adding to Christ that was of any value. Like I said, it's a destructive addition to add anything to Christ. J.C. Ryle said, Since Satan cannot destroy the gospel, he has too often neutralized its usefulness by additions, subtractions, or substitutions. I think that puts it even more clearly than our common saying today. You add something, you subtract something, you substitute something, it's no longer the gospel. It no longer has the power of God to save souls. And so syncretism in all of its forms is very evil. And I think that's a big problem we're looking at here in the book of books of First and Second Corinthians. Uh, the context also includes that part of the previous chapter, talking about being faithful ministers versus being peddlers that we covered uh, two weeks ago. And we've spoken about that a couple of times in our trip through Second Corinthians. This discussion here is also intended to further that distinction between the rightful ministers of God and the false ministers of God. And in verse 1 through 3, it talks about the fruits of the right ministry, the true ministry. Jesus warned, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inward ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, and the diseased tree bears bad fruit, Matthew seven, fifteen through 17. Good fruit in, this, in our context today is, one of them is the transformation of people's lives. Bad fruit, division, man-following, false doctrine, peddling or being a con artist for self-profit, self-glory. That distinction is coming from the previous chapter right into what he is saying now here. The truth is, the difference between the peddler and the true minister is the fruit of their ministry. And we'll come in more detail on that as we go. And of course, the context of the book of Second Corinthians, uh, scholasticism versus biblical Christianity. And there are other forms of syncretism mixed in, of course, because uh, all the problems that were happening in the church were happening in this church as well. The big one being, though, the man-following that comes with the scholasticism, the, the Greek and Roman philosophies, and how you follow the best man who has the best philosophy, who has the most followers, who has the most desirable life, as opposed to taking up your cross and following Christ. So he, he's talking about commending himself in letters of commendation. Are we trying to show that we're good by 
saying good things about ourselves. And do we need letters from people to show that we're good? Do we need your letters to show others that we're good? The text implies that there were letters of recommendation involved in the problems that were happening. And for good or ill, people were looking at them and listening to them. Letters and name dropping happen all the time in the Old Testament, the New Testament, uh, mostly in the New Testament, and even in our day. Oftentimes it's quite negative. In Galatians, certain men came from James, is the problem. And it mentions that in Galatians 2.12. Before those certain men came from James, he, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. Well, when they came, he drew back and separated himself for fear of the circumcision party. And so the circumcision party, the Jews, the legalistic Jews, unbelieving Jews, were using James' name as the head of the Jerusalem church to give themselves some authority. Don't know if they had a letter or were just misusing his name, but given James' uh, summary at the Jerusalem Council, uh, clearly he was not in league with them. So they had just dropped his name to get ahead, so to speak. And of course, in this chapter, there's the implication that they had a, they had letters and they wanted more letters to build their um, their status and their authority. There are also, though, positive uses of it in the New Testament. In Acts 18, we read about Apollos, a Jew named, starting in verse 24, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, knowing only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had through grace believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So Apollos was obviously a very skilled man, a very capable man. He was helping the church. He wanted to go on. And they said, you know, we'll recommend you so that the church is there. We'll know that you're a good guy and should listen and that you can be of great help to them because they wouldn't have known him otherwise. The third John, however, was also written about this same problem. And beloved, it is a faithful saying, starting in verse 5, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified about your love before the church. You do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that they may be, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So these men are going out, sent by the church, to go help the other churches. And if you think about it in that day, there weren't many trained pastors. There were, there were believing Jews who 
acknowledged their Messiah and were teaching, and there were Gentiles who had learned from Paul or another missionary and were teaching, but they weren't fully trained. They were what we would call today more like lay pastors, elders who are not yet qualified. And so sending people out to help them was something the church did. But not everybody would accept that. There's also another passage I want to read in Acts 13. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work which I have called them. So after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. We consider that to be ordination. They were ordained to go as missionaries because the Holy Spirit had said, send those two as missionaries to the world. And that was the beginning of their first missionary journey that started all of the Gentile churches throughout what is now Turkey and Greece, even all the way to Rome in the end. So they were ordained to that task, and that's a more formal kind of letter where I have been ordained by the Bible Presbyterian Church, so the Bible Presbyterian Churches know that I am accepted by the belief system that the church has. So that's kind of like a letter, and there's value in that, right? especially the beginning of somebody's ministry when they're unknown. If Apollos had just shown up and started teaching, it might have taken a lot of work and a lot of time before the churches would accept him. And and so the letter helped to establish him in the beginning. After a time, the letter should include things about the success of their ministry in transforming hearts. And we'll talk about what's success and what is not success a little bit, but that should be part of the letters. And eventually, the the effect of their ministry on the lives of people should be going before them. And people say, oh, when you know that man came to preach in the other churches, you know, there was revival, there were people converted, there were people who grew spiritually from where they were to a higher point in Christ. And that's really what Paul is driving at here, that transformed heart, that transformed life of those who were evangelized and those who were disciples should really speak for the teacher, the minister. And that's what the Great Commission is really all about. People often think the Great Commission is going out and evangelizing people around the world and baptizing them. And I shared before about a, about a missionary I knew who evangelized people, converted whole villages, and left. Came back a year later, they're sacrificing a bloody chicken to Jesus. It's like, what about discipling? Well, let's read Matthew 28, 18 through 20. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus speaking. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Not just to baptize, but to disciple. Remember the problem there in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 12. He's talking about the divisions in the church. What I mean is, one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. No, Apollos, the one I just read, who got letters of recommendation to the churches, is listed here. 
He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized into my name. I did also baptize Angela Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. Paul had baptized a lot of people, so his memory may not have been good. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Think about that. His purpose was not to baptize people, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom. The Greek and Roman philosophers were all about words of eloquent wisdom, and he's specifically mentioning that, because that, I think, is the big problem that he's facing in Corinth. But not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That was 1 Corinthians 1, 12-17. That's the real problem with what's going on with scholasticism here in Corinth. The syncretism of pagan Greek and Roman philosophy with Christianity ultimately empties the cross of Christ of its power. Using words of wisdom to persuade men means they are converted by the wisdom of man, not by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by the cross. That's the danger. This transformation is what we're looking at here in these first three verses as being the witness for Paul's ministry. Because that's the power of the gospel. Paul tells them later in the book of 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, verse 17 and following, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away, the old, the new has come. All this is from God. And through Christ reconciled to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Those in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors to Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So there is his little gospel presentation, but he's saying because of that, we are a new creation. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I usually put that at the end of the Romans road when I'm using that for evangelism or teaching it for evangelism, because that's when a Christian should be transformed. Notice in both of those verses, it is done by the God, by his will and by his power, by his strength, not by the will of man, not by the strength of man. Writing to the Corinthians, continuing from above, in chapter 3, 1 Corinthians 3, what is Apollos, what is Paul? Servants to whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants to he who waters is anything, but God who gives the growth. 
The plants in Eeyore, waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Now they were dividing over, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, and Paul is saying, you know, what do I see in who am I? We're just workmen who do the tasks that God has assigned, and God will reward us for the task. We are brother workmen. He does one part, I do a different part. We're together. Same purpose. Why do you want to pit us against each other and follow one or the other? But that's what men want to do, especially in that background of their philosophers. You know, we need to pick the best philosopher and follow him. We need to pick the best pastor, and he is the one we will follow. Instead of following the one, you know, listening to the one who was teaching them the truth at that time. And it wasn't just Paul and Apollos, apparently the super apostles here in Second Corinthians are now making their play. And they're not even believers, apparently, but they're leading people to follow them. This problem of man following is very serious. And we see it today. Some pastors get angry when you read books by other people. Because they don't want you following the writer of the book, they want you following them. But on the other hand, some of the books are really horrible, and if you start following them, you're going to go off into the weeds. And you say, oh, but you know, they, they've written 100 books, and they're successful, and their church has 50,000 people. Oh, what does that have to do with anything? It's about the truth. You know, the misuse of letters of recommendations, the misuse of people's name can be a real problem. Men can be fooled. We, we can't examine the heart completely. We can examine their teaching. We can examine the results of their teaching, which are what we're called to do in this passage. But we can't really see their heart. Sometimes men will recommend their friends, their compatriots. Oh, I, yeah, that person has some problems. You know, they're a good guy. I know them. Sometimes we recommend smooth talkers because they con us. But if they're not called by God, if their beliefs are not sound and solid, the recommendations go astray. And of course, sinners will also recommend other sinners, not saints. The truth of God is foolishness to them, and the pastor who reaches the truth is going to be foolish to pastor considering the godless ones. Uh, we see this a lot in the charismatic movement today. All the false prophets make the same false prophecies. They all recommend and commend each other. And never once will you find them commending somebody who's right. They might recommend a saint to borrow their name, like people referencing James above, right? We read earlier, James, they used James' name to bring in their false teaching. And even Peter was dissuaded from doing what was right because of it. Men will often overlook these things and instead look to the number of followers. A big church, obviously they're doing something right. A well-published author, obviously they've got the right thing. A small church, small denomination, don't trust them. Obviously they're small because they don't know what they're doing, because they don't have the good stuff. Uh, we'll follow the wrong way. We talked about evangelism explosion said if you you know if you have the right technique you make thousands of converts if you don't have the right technique you have very little fruit well their idea of fruit was somebody willing to say the sinner's prayer 
as opposed to somebody whose heart has been transformed by the Lord. And that's what we're driving at here, and Paul is driving at here in these first three verses. You know, the evidence of my success in ministry, the evidence of the truth of my ministry, is seen in the way your hearts are. The transformation of your heart. That brings us to this letter written on the hearts of the Corinthians. This is the promise of the new covenant, a transformed heart. We've spoken about the passage many times in Ezekiel 36. I want to do it again. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Ezekiel 36, 25-27 Who will do it? I, the Lord. What will he do? He'll give us a new heart. He will put his spirit in us. What's the result of that work of God? I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That is, our heart, being transformed by the Holy Spirit, will now do what was impossible before. It will seek God in salvation, and it will seek to obey God more and more in life, sanctification. As Paul says in Romans 3, 10-18, It is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And with man, there is no one who is seeking God unless God has changed their heart. As long as the heart of stone is there, we may seek something. We may seek a God. We may seek a relief. We may seek a hope. But it is not, never going to be the true, one true living God. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to his law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We cannot please God by seeking him. We cannot please God by obeying him. That though God has taken out that heart of stone and put in that heart of flesh. So Jesus also explains this in the New Testament. Nicodemus should have understood that passage in wrote that, that we read in Ezekiel. He should have known it well. He was a teacher of Israel. So those men of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, Jesus in John 3, a man came to Jesus by night. He didn't want to be caught by the other Pharisees. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. So he knows Jesus is a teacher from God based on the miracles. Everybody should have understood that. But he says, Jesus says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says, How can a man be born when he's old? 
Can he enter the womb of his mother a second time and be born? And Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. For that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. I think Jesus is making a direct reference to that passage in Ezekiel. You must be born again. You must have that heart of stone taken out and a heart of flesh put in. We read earlier, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He has that new heart, that new spirit. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us himself. That's the gospel, that our heart be transformed by the power of God. It's absolutely necessary for the believer to have that new heart, to be a believer. That's the definition. And that new heart will follow God. I will cause you to be careful to obey my word. John the Baptist said, The axe is laid at the root of the tree. Even, even now, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree that therefore does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown in the fire. Matthew 3.10 Jesus said, You'll recognize them from their fruit. Are the grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? For every good, healthy tree bears good fruit. The diseased tree bears bad fruit. Healthy tree cannot bear good fruit. Or healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. And a diseased tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Matthew seven sixteen through 20. And again, he continues on a bit later after talking about that for a while. Either make a tree good. Who makes the tree good? Well, it's God who takes out the heart of stone and puts in the heart of flesh. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? Where of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Uh, this transformation of heart is necessary. And it is the evidence in our life that we know God, that we have been transformed. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The, the, the life that we lead comes from the heart. As the heart has been transformed, it will be a different life. Paul says in Philippians chapter 127, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's what we've been talking about, this new heart, this new life, the gospel of Christ's faith in God, in Christ's sacrifice, Christ's blood. <clears throat> Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, stri mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That manner of life flows from our heart, and if our heart is still stone, it will not be a godly life, a godly manner. But if our heart has been transformed into a heart of flesh, then it will lead, and led by the Spirit, and the Spirit has been put in there, then that manner of life will follow the manner of God in the Spirit. Remember, the carnal mind is enmity against God, not subject of the law of God, nor can it be, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so, 
be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, any man who does not have the Spirit of Christ is not his. This brings us to the matter at hand, and that is that transformed heart, that transformed life, written not in tablets of stone, but in the heart. That is the evidence of salvation and the evidence of our sanctification. Peter warns us, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly love, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Second Peter 1, 5 through 10. Think about what he has said. These virtues should be ours and should be increasing. That we may, That is our fruit, that we may bear that fruit. And if we don't have them, we're unfruitful. And if we're unfruitful, how are we confirming our calling and election, which is confirmed by the fruit we produce? Paul lists some of these evidences of uh, this new life, this fruit that we should be producing. He lists a few of them in Galatians 5, where it says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, but those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We have had that heart of stone taken out of our flesh and a heart of flesh put in. We've crucified those sinful desires, and we can do those things because we live by the Spirit and step with the Spirit. So let us not be conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Galatians, uh, sorry, I skipped back a bit, skipped ahead a bit. Yep. So if we have those qualities, we can confirm our calling election. And if we have those qualities that Paul has mentioned, those fruits of the Spirit, we are, we are producing the fruit that Jesus was talking about, the fruit that comes from a new heart and a new life. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. The oldest things are passed away, the new has come. Second Corinthians 5.17 All this is why Paul concluded his second epistle to the Corinthians with the call, Since you seek proof, that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you, for he was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves, see whether in your faith, in the faith. Test yourselves, but do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope that you will find out that we have not failed the test. We pray to God that you may not that you may do no wrong. Not that we may have appeared to met the test, but that you will do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, 
but only for the truth. Second Corinthians thirteen three through eight. They wanted proof that he was speaking for God. He's saying, I don't need a letter of recommendation to prove that. You are the letter of recommendation. Look at your lives. Has it not been transformed by the power of God? Look at your heart. Do you not have a new heart? Do you not have God's spirit in you? Are you not producing fruit? That is the evidence you're asking for. The evidence you're asking for is not to be of superior wisdom, because that doesn't prove it. It is not to have the big church, the big power, the big popularity, to be the best debater and speaker. That's what they were saying they had. Paul is saying, I have the evidence of your changed heart. That is the proof. The proof of your salvation, that should give you assurance of your salvation, and the proof of his ministry, that God through him did that. That does not happen through the wicked. Does not happen through the false teachers, the one who accommodates, the one who peddles the word of God. To summarize, I'd like to remind you of James' statement. Remember, someone will say, You have faith, but I have works. Show me your faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by my works. James 2.18. It continues down in verse 26. For the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. If you say you have faith, if you say you're a believer, if you say you're a Christian, obviously, if you're not living a new life in Christ, if there is an evidence that your heart has been transformed and you're producing the fruits of the Spirit, then your faith is a dead faith. It's not a real faith. The evidence of Paul's ministry was that it produced a real faith in people, a real change in people's lives, a real transformation in their, in their lives. And he's saying, look at that. From when I came, what you were, what you are now, what you believe, how you're living your life, is not that, not that the evidence that my ministry was the true ministry of God. And so... Yes, we are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. It produces in us the good fruits, the fruits of the Spirit. And that fruit should be apparent to us and to everyone. And that testifies about the ministry where we received that. So that is Paul's point here in the first three verses of the chapter. We'll get more into this new covenant and what it means and why it is so much more glorious than the old covenant in future messages. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can look at the fruits in our life, we can look at our heart and see how different it is than it was, see how different it is from the heart of the world, see that we do indeed seek you, seek your kingdom, seek your glory, seek the things above, that we do seek to please you in our lives to live a life worthy of our calling, worthy of our election, worthy of the gospel, worthy of your Son and the price he paid for our souls. And we pray, Lord, that we would always seek those things in ourselves and seek those in our friends and in those who would be our teachers and our pastors and our ministers and our missionaries, that we might truly glorify you and see your kingdom progress. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.